Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When a child is in the foster care system, adoption gives them the chance to finally feel like part of a family. But when these kids, many who face trauma-related disorders, need care, who's responsible for connecting and paying for those services? Today, where we live, we hear from the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT, about its story of some adoptive parents who allege that DCF is not connecting their kids with the proper mental health care. And if the parents insist on intensive services but can't pay for it themselves, they say DCF suggests they do something many don't want to do. We'll hear from CHIT about their story in just a few moments. Later, we check in with the state child advocate. Last week, Sarah Egan released a troubling report about an 18-month-old baby that nearly died after DCF placed the child with an unfit relative. We asked DCF Commissioner Joette Katz to join us this hour. She declined. But we're still going to talk about this and many other issues. Later in the hour, we'll shift focus to new data on the many challenges Connecticut working families still face. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. First, I want to welcome Lisa Chetical, senior writer and co-founder of the Connecticut Health I-Team. Thanks for coming in today, Lisa. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Tell us about your reporting. You profiled um, over the weekend the story of several parents who've adopted children through DCF and who've essentially been forced to trade in custody for care. What does that mean? I didn't know what it meant either when I started reporting this over the summer. Um, But this is a group of parents uh, sort of loosely formed in a network um, most of whom adopted um, children through DCF. Some were kinship adop- adoptions, relatives' kids. Others were um, just regular bringing kids in as foster kids and adopting them. What they seem to have in common is that a lot of these kids suffer from attachment disorder, early trauma, reactive attachment disorder. And I thought the story initially was going to be like, how do you treat these kids? Do they need specialized treatment? But um, actually, it's a different issue, which is, um, these parents have exhausted uh, sort of in-home counseling, and uh, kids have been in and out of hospitals for most of their youth, and they come to a point all separately, they didn't know each other, um, where basically the state uh, says to them, or at least proposes that they actually give up custody of the kids back to the state um, And the parents are under the impression that that's the only way to get them proper residential specialized services. So that's why it's called trading custody for care. So if there are issues, if a a child is acting out because of these disorders, as you mentioned, um, through a program, it's called voluntary services, they can get intensive counseling at home, but that doesn't always help. Correct. So DCF in Connecticut, interestingly, um, has two main functions, a child protection agency for cases of neglect and abuse and um, placing kids in foster homes. The other arm of it is actually um, uh, the voluntary services, which is they are the child mental health provider in Connecticut as well. So most of these parents came through DCF after adopting their kids um, and cobbled together mental health services, but then at some point went back to DCF through the door of voluntary services and said, listen, we need more um, intensive treatment. 
um, what they what the the norm is is they would get a few hours a week of in-home counseling for these kids called uh, a program called ICAPS. But when they start to push for residential care or specialized care, that's when they ran into roadblocks. You mentioned residential care. Under Joette Katz's leadership, they've really dropped the number of children that are um, put in residential care because of the cost. Definitely out-of-state residential treatment centers are out of the question. Um, they've really tried to, to stop that practice. And so is that why these families are hearing when they want residential treatment that they're just their only options are to continue with this ICAPS? Yeah, they certainly think so. They think that the budget cuts and the cutback in, in um, out-of-state placements and out-of-home placements are a reason why um, DCF and the judicial system will say turn over custody. Um, their belief is that, and, and it's backed up by um, some federal laws, that when a child is in state custody, the state can access federal money um, for children in its custody where they it's not so easy, at least, when, when the kids are in the custody of the family. But yes, the, this is coinciding with the cutback in residential and out of home placements, which DCF, like many other um, agencies across the country, um, believes should be reduced and that kids should stay in the home as much as possible. These, what these parents will say is, yes, we agree. We, we agree with you completely. That's the right thing to do. But there are cases with our kids who have reactive attachment disorder and are dangerous to other siblings in the family and can't live safely at home, that there should be an exception made for out-of-state, out-of-home placements. I'm talking with Lisa Chedical, senior writer and co-founder of the Connecticut Health I-Team. Uh, she reported over the weekend that there are some adoptive and foster parents who have children with uh, you know, severe trauma disorders, and when they want intensive mental health treatment, sometimes there's a proposal that they just give the kids back to state custody. So the feds, the federal government, will pay for that intensive health care. Let's hear about one of the parents, Lisa. Susan Russell was one that you profiled. Yes, yeah, Susan Russell is... Um actually had a a recent um, situation of trading custody for care. In in August, in fact, is when she gave up, um, ended up finally giving up custody. But like the other parents, she's a single mom from Barkhamstead. She is uh, works in the insurance industry, adopted three kids through the, through DCF. Um, great kind of, great kind of person, um, kind of typical mom, um, soccer mom. But her, the, um, son that she adopted uh, seven or eight years ago um, just deteriorated and the and the limited counseling that he received at home through DCF didn't work and Susan pushed and pushed for residential care basically uh, didn't get it didn't get the specialized care Kevin became destructive and dangerous at home to the other kids and to Susan and her mom and uh, this is a clip uh, in uh, she's talking about in April having to tell Kevin that he can't come home the day I had to actually tell him that he was not coming home was one of the hardest days of my life. He sat there emotionless. Um, I was a blubbering idiot like now. And he just sat there stone cold, um, didn't look at me. Kind of, I was rubbing his back the whole time. And then he just looked at me and I asked for a hug. And he held on to me for about 20, 25 minutes. Didn't say a word. Just hugged me. And then later he said he was disappointed, but he knew that I had to make the decision that he couldn't come home because I couldn't keep him safe. So what happened with Susan Russell's son? So she 
traded in the custody for care? She did. August 24th, she in front of a, a judge in Torrington. Um, she gave him back to the state, and she... Um, I, I'm not sure what kind of care he's receiving. In some of these cases, Lucy, um, what appears to happen is the parents are under the assumption that if they sign the uncared for petition, which is a vehicle that the state uses, or give back custody, then the kid will get placed in a specialized program. But in um, in at least a portion of these cases, they actually don't. They get placed with other foster families or they get placed in subacute settings. So Kevin right now is still, I think, in a subacute setting with no sort of permanent long-term plan for him. But um, Susan does not have uh, decision-making authority anymore. Now, that seems really problematic. So these parents, when they're, we've reached, they have no other option. They're asked to sign a petition that says uncared for as if they haven't done their job as parents. Correct. Although what what, tends, what, what DCF will say is uh, uncared for petitions are only used when the child's welfare is in jeopardy. Um, but that appears to mean, um, as in the case with, with Susan, Susan based, basically said in April, I can't take him home. I'm, I can't take him home from the hospital first, and then I can't take him home from the short-term uh, treatment program. And that can be construed as uncared for. If you, if you refuse to take your child home, and you're pushing for uh, residential services that, that I guess, is considered uncared for. Uh, well, we're going to hear from another parent that you interviewed, Eileen Bronco. Let's hear the clip of how she talks about, um, you know, having to go to court and, uh, you know, file what's called an uncared for petition. We were told in the juvenile court by the guardian ad litem that if um, we can't get him into this care or that care, we'll just file a petition, an uncared for petition, where DCF would take custody. And I said, no. Oh, and I was assured by the guardian ad litem, don't worry, it's just standard. Um, you know, it's just a way that DCF will be able to get the federal money to pay for care. And um, it happens all the time, and it's nothing on you. It's, it really doesn't say anything to, about you as, as parents. And um, that's not true. So in your reporting, uh, Lisa Chetical again from CHIT, what is DCF saying about um, these allegations from this network of foster and adoptive parents? Um, I just, I just want to point out Eileen Bronco is a former DCF Social worker in Connecticut started her career there and now is in mental health. I mean, and you know, with, with most of these parents, they are um, as su- as surprised and shocked as regular people might be that this that custody even becomes an issue. What DCF is saying is that it's not a practice or policy or norm or uh, expectation of the department that custody would. C- would come up and, and be tied to mental health care. It's not supposed to be by statute. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, actually a pretty good law in the books in Connecticut that says you should be able to access voluntary mental health services for your kids with no uh, uh, obligation or connection to custody. Um, so on the books, it looks great. DCF says it, you know, it's not a systemic issue, that, there, that in cases where there are uncared for petitions, there's been some child protection concern um, that does it. But um, it's interesting because it, it came up before in 2004, I think. Um, there was a, actually a congressional report done that showed that Connecticut had a large number, 700, I think, 
large number of cases of kids um, of of parents who were giving up custody in exchange for care. And the commissioner at the time, Darlene Dunbar, actually wrote a memo and said, "I just want to to all of DCF staff saying, I just want to remind you, um, we don't do that. We do not pressure parents to give up custody." Um, for the for the sole purpose of accessing care, um, DCF has not done any kind of memo like that. Even though I know I brought the concerns up, other the, the DCF actually met with the parents, met with the child advocate. So I'm not I'm not exactly sure. Um, I guess they are standing by that um, it, they're only they're doing uncared for petitions in an appropriate way. But if someone asks them how many uncared for petitions. They've, you know, granted, or this is what's happening. Can DCF provide that information? Um, it actually would be the judicial um, arm. I think they do have some idea of account on the uncared for petitions, and um, you know, be, it would be certainly interesting over time to compare. Are there more now, less now? Um, but I, I don't have any handle on how many there are. I just know that it's a fairly large statewide group of families who are in this situation. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Julie, you're calling from Farmington. We just have a couple of minutes. Uh, please tell us your question or comment. Well, my comment is that um, I have to support and agree with um, this report on DCF and the fact that there is no care. I am also an adoptive parent of two children through DCF and have a 15-year-old who has had multiple short-term hospitalizations. The most recent, in fact, um, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon at a hospital meeting, I was promised aftercare through residential for at least two weeks and got a call later that night at 5.30 saying, come and get your daughter. Um, we're not going to place her anywhere. Um, and I had to go pick her up at 9 o'clock at night, um, bring her home. Um, when she got no care in the hospitalization except for making sure that she was stable behaviorally, um, no other types of support. They instituted ICAPS, which was another failure. Um, it's two young social work degreed people who um, have no experience um, dealing with these intense behavioral issues or the intense mental health needs. They come and they provide really, I, I can't call it counseling as so much as um, expensive babysitting time to give the parents and the family a break. Um, well, Julie, so the, the lack of services mm -hmm. is just devastating children foremost and families um, throughout this state. Well, thank you, Julie, for sharing a little bit of your story. Um, Lisa, before we head to break, um, you again, you're, you profiled, uh, you did the story profiling these parents because they're part of this network of parents really upset um, with this practice. Uh, what recourse do they have? Right now, um, they they're, um, obviously want their children back still. Um, so they're dealing with uh, their own individual situations and trying to get um, in cases where the children are, um, they have to track down their kids. They don't even know where their kids are. Some have hired lawyers. But they're, they are um, lo trying to lobby legislators in Connecticut to pass um, some, something that uh, explicitly says that custody relinquishment will not be brought up mm -hmm. um, when you're seeking services for your kids. There's a federal bill. The, um, that may help loosen up some federal money for uh, mental health services for adoptive kids. So they're working a variety of routes. Any uh, lawsuits? 
No lawsuits yet. It's being talked about. It's, uh, there, there have been some in other states, but not here yet. Not here yet. Thank you so much. Lisa Shedekel is a senior writer and co-founder of the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT. We'll link to her story on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thank you, Lucy. When we come back from the break, we'll learn more about a baby boy named Dylan. He nearly starved to death in foster care. His story is the focus of a critical report of DCF by the state child advocate. We'll learn more coming up. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. An 18-month-old baby nearly starved to death while in the custody of a foster parent. DCF placed the child with a relative who has since been charged with neglect and abuse. How did this happen? The state child advocate released a lengthy report last week pointing to multiple gaps in how DCF handled this case. Sarah Egan joins us now to talk about her findings. Welcome back to where we live, Sarah. Hi. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for having me. The baby's pseudonym is Dylan. How did he come to be in DCF's care and placed with this particular relative? So Dylan, along with his very young siblings, were all removed from their uh, parents' care uh, in uh, some point last year, last June, due to concerns of escalating and chronic neglect. Um, So they were all removed on an emergency basis, and they had to be placed into foster care. He and his siblings were separated and placed into different relative homes with DCF's plan to license the homes as foster parents. So he was placed with a relative of the mother, like you said, last summer. Um, And then by November, he was hospitalized. So that's right. So he was in this foster home for five months. And uh, you started with sort of how did this happen? That was our question. How did this happen? How was this? Dylan was 13 months old when he came in. He was 13 months old. He's coming in abused and neglected or maltreated. He has already has global developmental delays. He's placed into a foster home that even at first glance does not come close to meeting state licensing criteria for foster parents. Um, they demonstrate no capacity to meet the complex needs of a maltreated uh, baby. Um, they didn't pass the background checks. They had prior child protective service history, uh, lengthy. They had uh, prior criminal history. Um, they had no income. Um, they had uh, health issues, which some of which were known to the department. Um, there was no analysis of how any of these issues were resolved or not. There was no analysis of how these problems impacted their ability to care for this child. How this could, how A, Dylan could be placed, but B, go so inadequately monitored for such a long period of time that, and it, it, I mean, at the end, Lucy, it wasn't even the um, DCF employees who took him to the hospital. It was the new foster mother that um, Dylan was eventually removed and placed into another foster home because the foster parents he was with weren't keeping appointments. And so the new foster mother looks at him and takes him to the hospital, and he is sent by ambulance to the state children's hospital where he's admitted for weeks, um, where he was just globally battered, um, injured, maltreated, malnourished, starving to death. Uh, It is a stunning, staggering tragedy and a staggering collapse of a series of safeguards that all failed. And that's what has to be looked at. So let's let's back up. So when someone... um becomes a foster parent in the state of Connecticut. There are systems in place in terms of they, the social workers or caseworkers do an assessment of the home, and that wasn't done? 
Uh, it wasn't adequately done, no. So uh, it, it looks like a background check was done, though even the information in the electronic record about the background check was backfilled. And what I mean by that is that it wasn't actually entered into the electronic record until after Dylan was hospitalized. So there's some back and forth between employees at DCF in the wake of this that they were or were not told about the background. But background checks theoretically were done. I can't actually corroborate that. Um, but there's also supposed to be an assessment, an in-home assessment of the foster parents. That wasn't done here either. So the family also had, there was some criminal history, a previous child neglect history as well? Correct. Um, the, one of the foster parents had a, had a lengthy history of having been the subject of, mo- of, of multiple reports, one of which was substantiated with regard to her own child. Um, the foster father had a criminal history that by statute would have barred placement does bar placement of uh, a baby on an emergency basis in a foster home absent a waiver from the DCF commissioner. So one of the things that was really troubling us along the way is with this many concerns, and I think we, we document in our report that somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 different, different DCF employees, staff, managers, uh, looked at or had access to the facts in this situation. And nobody is saying, oh, my God, how did this baby get placed in this home? Right. I mean, some of this is not rocket science. We wrote a 65-page report about a, about a story that's actually not rocket science, mm. which is if all of these people are not saying, hey, how did this happen? Boy, we really got to look at this. Then either you can draw one of two conclusions. One is that all of these employees are rogue and they're just doing their own thing or that what they, they, they don't think that what they're seeing is that remarkable. And, and that's is somehow the bigger concern. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Sarah Egan, Connecticut's child advocate. Uh, just last week, she released a report on how DCF handled a case of a baby. Uh, his pseudonym is Dylan, uh, who was in the care of a foster parent for six months, was hospitalized for near starvation and neglect, and she has investigated, you know, some of the missteps, a lot of missteps uh, that DCF staff took in this case. You know, we asked uh, DCF Commissioner Joette Katz to join us on this show to talk about this issue and others. She declined, so we don't have uh, any statement from DCF. But I can read a quote um, from Uh, One of the articles, uh, she did speak to the the current. And, um, you know, they maintain DCF under Commissioner Katz. This case is an outlier. What do you think about that? So I want to start. I think that's a really important sort of theme and question. I want to start by saying, first of all, our report is not an indictment of everything that DCF does, nor is it, and I think this is very important to underscore, an indictment of kinship care for abused and neglected children. I think like, like a lot of things that DCF has been doing over the last several years, kinship care is an important goal. It's an important policy, um, and we support it. I support it. Uh, as a lawyer for children, I advocated for some of these changes in the law that allow for uh, foster parents to be licensed um, and for waivers to be issued where there are non-safety, uh, where there are non-safety um, issues and no safety issues in the home. Um, so I think that the, the policies are sound, right? That being said... I don't know how anybody could read this report and these emails and these internal communications which speak to widespread practices with regard to the placement of children relative foster care that do not adhere to the law, which speak to employees and managers themselves that have concerns about the reliability 
uh, of, of some of their practices around placing children. But even if you left all of that to the side, their own emails, their own admissions, their own communications, you know, one of the regional managers for licensing saying, well, this is how we did it with lots of kids. But, but how they did it didn't comport to the law. Even if you left all of that to the side and all you had was a case summary of, you know, 12 to 15 employees who placed a developmentally delayed, abused and neglected toddler into a relative foster home, um, looked at all this risk and didn't halt this trajectory, that alone has to be a cultural warning sign for you mm-hmm. about how people are looking at risk. I mean, you can assume, geez, it's just these people just these three people, just these five, just these 10, just these 12. Um, I think that's a very risky assumption um, and not one that I would make. I want to ask a a lawmaker to join the conversation now. Uh, Dylan's case prompted the General Assembly's Senate minority leader to weigh in. Senator Len Fasano is joining us now by phone. Uh, Good morning, Senator. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, you've been outspoken for a long time. Uh, that DCF Commissioner Joette Katz needs to resign. Now this case happens. Tell us uh, why you are continuing uh, this call that Katz should resign. Well, uh, and, and good morning, Sarah. Good uh, morning, Senator. You know, here's the issue. The issue is is that uh, for the past couple of years, uh, I have introduced legislation uh, which um, has asked for sort of an independent review. In other words, have an oversight, have people weighing in, reviewing procedures, uh, doing follow-up on kids that uh, would not be done internally. And all that has been rejected by Commissioner Katz, um, even though a number of advocates have also supported this initiative. And it always seems to me that if someone is against an outside sort of unbiased third party reviewing the actions to make a system better, which is what the goal is of everyone, um, then, and these situations keep appearing, then you have to question whether or not, as her leadership role, what she's really afraid of. And if we're having kids harm and she won't have outside help look at this or a metric system that can follow these kids after they get uh, out of DCF uh, control, then you got to wonder what is really going on. And, and if we're not going to improve the system and she wants to let it stay where it is, and we have uh, these uh, horrible instances, uh, then you got to change leadership at the top. I think one of the emails um, that was in a report suggested her frustration with the system, uh, her being uh, Commissioner Katz. And if that's true and that were me, I'd ask for help. I would say, how can I get this system better? We all want the same thing. So I believe she's got to go because I don't think she has the skill set that is required to make the change at DCF. I wanted to bring in, um, you know, Governor Dana Malloy continues to defend Commissioner Katz. Here's a clip late last week where a reporter asked him, asked Governor Malloy about reaction to the Child Advocates report. We have to hold ourselves to very high standards. We have to work with, with, with the, the tools we have, and we have to hold our own employees accountable, and that includes the commissioner, uh, who I do hold accountable, uh, but, but I'm also looking at the big picture, uh, and real progress is being made uh, in Connecticut. Senator Fasano, um, again, Governor Malloy is there defending Katz, and he says he's looking at the big picture, even though we're talking about uh, the near starvation of a baby. What's your reaction? Well, 
you know, in all candor, uh, governor's office spoke out against my latest call for the commissioner to step down. But in December of 2015, I met with the governor privately, uh, knowing he was going to go through another series of appointments after his election. I met with him and said, you know, governor, we need to uh, I think you need to rethink really hard about Commissioner Katz. Here's the list of problems. I gave him a timeline that dated uh, back from 2013 of all the instances and reports and problems and issues and asked him not to reappoint her. Uh, he listened very intently. I gave him the information that I had. Uh, he decided to reappoint her, so he owns that problem. And even since that time, there's been a number of issues that keep coming up um, and a number of reports indicating that, unfortunately, uh, this commissioner and this and DCF is not doing the best job for kids. Uh, her, his inability to attack that issue or even support legislation to improve the system uh, questions why he is going far, so far out on a limb for this commissioner. I want to turn back to child advocate Sarah Egan. You know, you have some recommendations in this report. How would you want to see DCF moving forward? So, um, thank you. Yes, we made a lot of recommendations in the report. Um, I think there are a couple of very concrete things. One of the things that I found very troubling in our investigation was that the licensing worker said um, in internal communication, she said, you know, every time I went out to the house um, where, where Dylan was, um, you know, he didn't look good to me. He looked sickly. He didn't make baby noises. Um, he didn't smile. But I didn't document any concerns, and I didn't interact with him because that wasn't my job. In some ways, that may have been one of the most chilling and disturbing things I saw. But you know what? In some level, she, she was wrong, obviously. If you, you know, look, in child welfare, you see something, you say something. That's the bottom line. It's everybody's job at DCF to monitor safety and well-being of children. But what her manager confirmed is that there's no standard for the licensing team when they go to the home in terms of what their obligations are in regard to documenting observations with children. So I think that that's, that's one of the things, standards for the licensing workers. We have to look at caseloads for the licensing workers and frontline so social workers. We need to have a supervision tool for case managers when we're looking at infant-toddler cases, and they should be reviewed every 14 days. We have to make sure that the juvenile court that ultimately has supervision for these cases is provided information within 60 days of a child's placement about the licensability and the suitability assessment of the foster homes so that I'm not looking at a court record about this and escalating concerns about this child's placement, and yet nothing's in the court record. No information is provided to the court. That can't happen again. That's another check and balance that can be addressed. Um, have to do some retraining of the licensing folks to make sure that, I mean, what we have saw here is a tr dramatic drift in practice away from what the law requires. Okay, we can, I don't, don't think we can assume that that's isolated to, to, to these particular folks. Um, so I think those are some, we want DCF to take a look at kinship care, not to throw it out, keep it, keep it, keep it, um, but but look at some of these issues, time to licensing, how are the suitability assessments being done, are the laws being followed, are we giving foster parents the supports that they need? So I think a lot of things that we can do, um, and again, you know, I'd underscore, Lucy, that that. You know, D child welfare is a complex business. One of DCF's strengths is how many terrific people it has working for him. I mean, unfortunately, we didn't see that in here in this case. But but take it from me, DCF has a lot of awesome, terrific, 
thoughtful, compassionate, sophisticated people that work for it. What I think this report is is a is a warning sign about is 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 about culture, but also about how do you support institutional change, right? We want to go to to being one of the best in the country and placing kids with relatives. That's a massive institutional change. We have to have the infrastructure to support it. This is a life and death business. Um, and, and mistakes are very costly. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking with the state child advocate Sarah Egan, also Senate Minority Leader Len Fasano on the phone. If you have a question or comment, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Kirsten is calling from New London. Kirsten, you're on the show. Hello. What's your question or comment? I'm sorry, Kirsten. I can't. We can't hear you. Can you talk right I into? Said, I'm actually making the comments because Baby Dylan is my son. And so, how did you think DCF handled your son's case? I think they messed up on my kids. My case in the very beginning. Um, it's not about you know even foster homes. They need better things when it comes to parents in general. They want parents to do all this things, but yet there's no support. My kids should never have been removed. Um, so that's their biggest mistake. My kids were never abused in the home, but yet, or neglected, but yet they put him somewhere where he was. And it's not even about the kinship. There's, I have plenty of family members who have tried to step up in his case, but DCF has never wanted to listen. Plus, as we all know, they don't even document what's going on. So the whole point is they messed up from the very beginning. The workers are still working, okay? You messed up on children. If that was a parent, we would have been in jail. Now, the whole point is not only in my son's case or my children's case, but the point is these members aren't even facing what they should be facing. Mm. So there's a lot that needs to be readjusted. There's a lot of definitions for DCF that needs to be readjusted. Like, truly, they don't even know what neglect is or what abuse is, apparently, because they wouldn't have allowed my son to get that way. Well, Kirsten, thank you so much for sharing part of your story. And I did want to um, actually ask our guests in studio about something uh, she brought up. And, and she said, you know, there's lots of other relatives that could have taken her children. Um, so is there a question about how how does DCF? I'll, I'll, take this, I'll throw this question to Senator Fasano. Again, you've been through many committee hearings with DCF in front of you. You know, uh, que- are there concerns about how DCF uh, makes a decision of, of putting uh, children in the care of certain relatives? Well, I believe that unification, as Sarah said earlier in the interview, and uh, unification trying to get uh, kids placed with family members, I think that is important. But I think that that's not the uh, sort of we'll do that at all costs. And that's where I question, as Sarah said earlier, um, the methodology for getting there. You, There's been in one year that Commissioner Katz has been there, according to Sarah's report, 65 waivers signed by the commissioner. In this case, there there seems to be some confusion uh, as to the background check. And that's where, once again, an oversight to say, hey, here are the procedures that we must follow, here are the problems that we have, and here's how we can correct those problems. I think that that's what I'm looking at as an oversight committee to look at DCF, because they can plug up the holes where they're holes. Look, DCF is a very tough agency to handle. Uh, it's got great workers in it, and it's got some not-so-great workers in it. 
But what you need to do is to get a system and find system failures and then plug those failures up. But when you ignore those failures and pretend that every horrible case that we've seen, and we've seen a lot, is an anomaly and we should, you know, and there's this pity type of statement by the commissioner, but then no follow-up action, that is what um, really bothers me. And that's how you can't get a system better if you can ignore the problem. Senator so Fasano, you, I, I believe in unification. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea, but we need to have a better system. Mm-hmm. But we need to have someone who's looking at the system who doesn't have a vested interest uh, like the commissioner. In the past, you have proposed an independent ombudsman. DCF has resisted that call. And, you know, exactly. Now, there is an ombudsman who is under the uh, thumb, if you would, of Commissioner Katz. And I don't think that's right. You know, I think there needs to be someone who doesn't have to answer to the boss and be able to be independent of the boss to hear the complaints. I've gotten calls from workers at DCF who can't do their job because the commissioner has interfered with their judgment, has interfered with their ability to do their job, and they've called me because they have no other avenue to go. That's when Sarah talks about these people are trying their best. Those are the people that we're talking about who want to do what's right, who want to make the good decisions, but the commissioner overrides them. They don't have any place to go to uh, inform the legislature or others of these problems uh, because the ombudsman is, as I said, they don't feel comfortable talking to the ombudsman because he answers to the commissioner. Mm -hmm. And again, I wanted to point out to our listeners, we asked, we've put in repeated requests to have DCF Commissioner Joette Katz join the show. She declined for today. I wanted to uh, go back to child advocate Sarah Egan. You wanted to say something about a point? Um, Yeah. So I think, you know, around institutional decision making, right? So I think not just in this case, though we see it in the emails here, but um, particularly for the manager who at one point expresses concern about where they're placing um, other children in this family. And she says, I I don't want to keep placing children in foster situations that are marginal. not going to do it, right? But then I looked at the record, and and that is what they did, right? Mm -hmm. And as we're expanding our investigative activities to look at some of the other um, uh, waiver cases where we have some concerns, that's not the only time I see that. I looked at one earlier in the week where I see the licensing worker sending an email to her uh, boss, and she says, on a totally different case, where the relative foster parent is testing positive for cocaine while the children are placed in the home with her, and she sends this email to her boss, and she says, I don't know why we're doing this. Why are we licensing this person these are not these people don't meet licensing criteria. We remove the children from the home because of substance abuse. Now we have them in a home um, where we know the the foster parent is substance abusing, and and the super and I, I'm uncomfortable with this. Now, but she's the low man on, or maybe he. I can't remember the gender, but you know the workers, the low person on the totem pole. The supervisor says back, "I hear you. We're going to proceed with the license. I'm not going to forward this to our manager." But I'm going to let them know we're not optimistic, right? Now, eventually, those children were removed from that home. But but that but but how did that happen? That took months for those kids to be removed from that home. They never should have been placed there anyway because a waiver had been required and hadn't yet been received. So, you know, how many cases are there like that? I don't know. You know, and again, I in some ways I like to see the workers are so conscientious. They're paper their records. They're talking to their managers. They're challenging decision making. But what is that telling us about? 
where the pendulum has swung on risk and decision making, um, you know, some of the cases I see look okay, um, some look good, and some are shocking. And I think again, you know, it, the, the one of the worst things that could happen as a result of this is to say, well, let's let's not do kinship care anymore; it's too risky. And, and I hear the commissioner when she says that. Absolutely, you know, we don't disagree. Uh, we want kids with family whenever possible. But you know, this report is an opportunity. I mean, I hate to put it in those terms, but to say, what do we need to be looking at? What are we scared? I'm scared looking at some of these cases. I'm shocked looking at some of these cases. In this business, you don't get shocked a lot. Um, and I want Connecticut to, to move forward in a good, positive way for kids and families. We all want that. We all share that goal. But we have to be really reflective right now about and, and really honest with ourselves about um, are there pieces of this that need a lot more attention? We're going to have to go to break soon, but I wanted to ask you, Sarah Egan, you know, what whatever happened to baby Dylan after he was removed uh, from that foster home? Again, he has hospitalized for near starvation right. and neglect and abuse. So I think one of the things I was actually most um, concerned about in terms of the, the agency's response uh, publicly was that uh, this notion that the child has, quote, recovered, because that's just that's just not consistent with what, A, we know about him, and B, what we know about children this young, right, and and what they experience and how that shapes them. Baby Dylan um, has, in his two, two, he has been in, I think he's moving into his sixth foster home, certainly in at least five foster placements. He's had multiple different doctors and pediatricians. He's been hospitalized for weeks. He's been subjected to, um, you know, a protracted period of neglect, malnutrition, maltreatment, battery, lack of nurturance, lack of consistency, and he needs what all children under the age of three need, a consistent, caring, sober, nurturing caregiver. And without that, it it unfortunately can set a a very painful and maybe even lifelong trajectory. I want to thank Sarah Egan for joining us. She's Connecticut's child advocate. Also, thank you to Senate Minority Leader Len Fasano. We hope DCF Commissioner Joette Katz will consider our request to come on the show. We'd love to hear from her about this story and other issues. Coming up, we're going to shift to a new report by the United Way on the economic challenges still facing working families in Connecticut. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have political differences driven a wedge between you and your family members? Coming up tomorrow, we'll look at how and why the 2016 presidential campaign is creating divisions within some American households. And we want to hear your stories. That's coming up tomorrow on Where We Live. Right now, we're turning to a new report that studied the issues facing working families in Connecticut. Joining us by phone is Stephanie Hoops, director of the United Way Alice Project and author of the United Way Alice Report. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about this ALICE report. I'd love to. So ALICE is an acronym that stands for Asset Limited, Income Constrained, Employed. Um, And one of the key features of the ALICE report is that we look at the very basic cost of living, uh, what it takes to live and work in the modern economy in each area of Connecticut. And then we compare that to what people actually earn um, and what we found in our, in our latest report is that 38% of um, Connecticut's uh, 1.3 million or 1.4 million households, so 38% of those households earn below that basic 
cost of living. And how does this compare to, to previous years? Is the, is the challenge getting uh, less of a challenge, or has it still been stagnant? So um, it's interesting. We started looking in 2007 before the Great Recession, and we saw the number of, of households below that Alice threshold increase um, from 2007 to 2010, and I don't think that surprised anybody. Um, but then it's continued to kick, uh, tick up from 2010 to 2012, and then it even increased another percent from 2012 to 2014. So while we're seeing some good signs in the economy, this group of people is still struggling. When you talk about the good signs, uh, what do you mean in terms of job growth? Are wages slowly ticking up? So um, we are seeing, so the job market is mixed, I would say. Um, The total number of jobs in 2014 is not as high as it was in 2007. So the market hasn't fully recovered in that way. But we are seeing a shift um, so that the number of low-wage jobs is decreasing and the number of higher-wage jobs is starting to increase. Um, so that would be a good sign, um, except that instead of getting one of those higher-paying jobs, some people aren't working at all. So we're still seeing that um, dichotomy. And we're also seeing low-wage jobs are still the dominant jobs. Um, however, uh, Connecticut has um, broken a, a barrier that we haven't seen anywhere else yet in the country. So we break down jobs by what they pay by the hour. And $20 an hour seems to be a, a key turning point. And so in every other state that we've looked at, more than 50% of jobs pay less than $20 an hour. In Connecticut, this is the first time we've seen that, 49% of jobs pay less than $20 an hour. When we're talking about working families and still having trouble making ends meet, what about with our aging population um, in terms of, you know, we hear so many people will say, well, you know, we can't afford to retire. Um, Is that what the trend is showing where people are having to work longer and longer to make ends meet? So we're definitely seeing um, the trend in in Connecticut with uh, one of the larger um, senior populations. And this is a trend that we're going to see across the country as this group gets older um, and so Connecticut, with a larger population, is, is experiencing um, this already, that um, a large, uh, there's, there's a large group of these seniors, and a significant portion of them are Alice. So what we see with Social Security brings most uh, seniors above the federal poverty level, that very uh, minimum, outdated uh, level. But it's not enough to bring these seniors to that basic financial stability. Um, And as you mentioned, the the real issue with lack of um, retirement savings and and a lot of uh, families had planned better, uh, but then there was the Great Recession, the housing market, um, sometimes uh, loss of a job or even a shift in jobs so that your wages are less, so that what they had planned 10 or 20 years ago um, is not where they are now, and, and we're seeing a lot of seniors struggling. Well, again, we, we often focus, especially in the Northeast, about our aging population, but, you know, we're hearing trends that less, you know, people are taking, are deciding to take some time before they have children. Uh, can you talk about uh, that in, in your report? So we are seeing some interesting demographic trends at the younger uh, level that, um, The number of those young households, uh, definitely uh, households headed by someone under the age of 25, 
has uh, steadily decreased uh, from 2007 to 10 and continuing uh, to 2012 and 2014. And so I think everybody has heard stories of, you know, college kids moving back in with their parents. And you're wondering, is that just a couple of those stories? And no, it's actually uh, across the board we're seeing, you know, that, that trend. Um, and then those households that are left, those younger households, are much more likely to be in poverty or to be Alice. That um, those jobs that you get when you first graduate from college or when you're young, just starting in the workforce, um, are, are not enough to, to cover the, the higher cost of living in, in Connecticut. We like to look to our neighbors uh, to see, you know, how they fare. Uh, any of our neighbors are doing a better job at helping working families? So it's really interesting to look at Connecticut uh, compared to the other states that we've studied. And so when you first look at it, Connecticut actually has the highest cost of living of all the states that we've studied so far, uh, so 15 states across the country. And so you think, oh, yikes, Connecticut's going to have the most Alice households. But then the other side of the equation is looking at um, what wages pay. And in Connecticut, the wages are are better than many other states. So, in fact, um, Connecticut does not have the most Alice uh, households uh, and is actually in, in the middle of the pack. Um, so, Stephanie, we're going to have to leave it there. We're almost out of time. Uh, but I, I do want to thank you for giving us just a snapshot of the, the latest United Way Alice project and, and United Way Alice report. We'll link to that report on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Obviously, an important topic given the election season. People care about the economy and how they make ends meet. So, again, Stephanie Hoops, director of the United Way Alice project. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening today.